over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome! I'm so excited, April. This is part two of our two-part interview with Sarah Scuturo, head conservator at the Costume Institute of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. So if you haven't already, be sure and listen to part one for a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the work Sarah and her amazing team of conservators did on the Met's current exhibition, Heavenly Bodies, on view now until October 8th. But this interview, part one, uh, really only addressed one aspect of the work that Sarah and her team encounter on a daily basis. Because in addition to the work that they did on Heavenly Bodies, her team is also addressing the needs of the collection on a daily basis. And Cass, as you already know, this is a 35,000-piece collection, mind you. Whoa. So this is (laughs) no small feat. No, it is not. And in addition to working on pieces going into an exhibition, such as Heavenly Bodies, in which they're also maintaining and monitoring pieces throughout the exhibition, there are also loans and various other projects to attend to. And this includes interdepartmental collaborations, such as the recent Visitors to Versailles exhibition, which I sadly did not get to see, but I think you did April, right? How was it? Yeah, it was really lovely. Um, I fell in love with this red and white striped robe à l'anglaise. I posted them on my personal Instagram. So, <laughs> But as you mentioned, working on these types of exhibitions is just one facet of what Sarah and her team's day consists of. And in today's mini-sode, we get to learn a little bit more about the team tasked with the preservation and conservation of one of the most important fashion collections on the planet. So let's check back in with Sarah. And in addition to all of this work that you've discussed that your team did on Heavenly Bodies, your team is addressing the needs of the Mets collection on a daily basis. Um, There's actually this really fantastic video that highlights your team on Rack.com. I I highly suggest everyone look it up. Such a cool behind-the-scenes look. Thank you. Because you have other interdepartmental collaborations and loans and various other projects to attend to. And when you actually brought me into your brightly lit lab, for instance, I felt so special. It was very cool. I met um, Marina who was assessing this 1840s gown. And then you had another um, woman on your team, Cassandra, who was removing toxic buttons that were eating through a 1940s Vera (laughs) Maxwell dress. So there's (laughs) then then you shared with me this incredible Iris Van Herpen 3D printed dress that was under a Tyvek sheet. So there's just the span of time in your lab happening at this one instance. It was so cool. So can you speak to the different aspects of your department, including the challenges of storing and conserving all of these different types of garments and materials? Oh, sure. You know, it's never a dull day in the lab. Um, And the day you were there where it was especially, it was a good one. It was a fun one. Uh, It's why I love what I do. Um, You know, storing the fashion collections takes enormous resources. And we are so fortunate that we have a stellar collection staff led by Liz Randolph, uh, with whom our conservation team collaborates closely. So, While, of course, you know, historic pieces like 18th and 19th century garments are fragile, they require careful handling and plenty of flat storage space. 
you might be surprised to find out that contemporary garments from the 20th and 21st centuries can be even more vulnerable and um, degrade even more quickly. Uh, so for example, the buttons you reference on the Vera Maxwell jumpsuit are almost certainly made of cellulose nitrate, which is a highly unstable plastic that can spectacularly disintegrate while off-gassing nitric acid. Because they were eating through the jumpsuit, um, we call this kind of plastic malignant, and we try to uh, remove or um, segregate the plastic from our normal collection so that we don't put our collection at risk. Um, so this is a project that's ongoing. Our collections team is really taking the lead and identifying and um, segregating these objects. And then we're working together to come up with a long-term solution of how to store them. The Iris Van Herpen you saw in the lab was there because we're also working on a permanent storage solution for it. Uh, first, you know, it's not 3D printed, actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's a dress constructed out of canvas that has a thick polyurethane foam coating containing ferrous particles on it. Oh. So uh, because iron is magnetic, I know, <laughs> what she did is... Um, she poured this polyurethane foam onto the canvas, and then uh, the foam contains the iron particles. And then she used magnets to pulse the foam into these craggy peaks and valleys uh, before it set and, and hardened. So now we have this completely amazing textured dress. The foam coating is pretty flexible. But because of all of the metal that's in it, it's completely, I mean, it's super heavy um, to the point where, you know, most of our common hangers would not be able to support it. On top of that, our Department of Scientific Research, um, who I, I mentioned them a lot, but we work very closely with them to understand the processes behind all of the work that we do. Our Department of Scientific Research has analyzed the foam and they confirmed it is an ether-based polyurethane, which means that it will rapidly break down in the presence of oxygen. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so we're worried that, you know, over time, we will be unable to dress or exhibit uh, this garment since the foam will start hardening. It might shrink, it might contract, but it will almost certainly crumble. Uh, so the storage solution we are seeking, um, and we are actually in the process of executing it, we're not finished, but we are working on it right now, is we are creating an archival torso form made out of ethafoam that can be used also for exhibition. So it's an invisible form that perfectly fits the shape of the garment and supports it. But the next step um, is we're going to store the dress anoxically uh, in a huge clear bubble filled with argon gas. <laughs> um, I know it sounds pretty sci-fi, but oh it's great because, yeah, this clear bubble allows us to keep an eye on what's happening so we can actually see through it and we can see the piece. But the anoxic environment, uh, so that there won't be any oxygen in it, will uh, prolong its useful life, at least we hope. Um, so although PU or polyurethane foam breaks down rather quickly, um, we actually don't have any idea how long of a lifespan that this dress has. And so we're lucky that it, it's relatively new and we can get in um, at the initial stages and store it in its most ideal environment. 
Wow. Well, that is incredible. And I actually really want to see pictures of this mount. It's possible. <laughs> I think I think once it's finished, we're hoping, I'm sure maybe on our Instagram we'll have yeah. photos of it. <laughs> So you're encountering the most beautiful and rare of fashion history on the daily. I am dying to know if there has ever been a garment or an object that has just made you stop in your tracks. Yes. (laughs) Or multiple garments or every day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I know one of your favorite pieces Mm -hmm. is, I think, everybody's favorite. It's a 1911 coat by Paul Perret and Raoul Dufy. And um, that coat in particular was actually just treated in our lab by Glenn Peterson, again, who is our most experienced and one of our most talented conservators. The problem with the coat, um, the fur collar and cuffs were in very bad condition. The fur was shedding significantly, um, primarily because the skin underneath the fur was starting to disintegrate. Something in the tanning process or the processing um, of it had uh, caused it to start to decay rapidly. We had found that the skin had been partially consolidated in the past by a previous conservator using adhesives, but it was continuing to degrade so much and the solution wasn't that great that you couldn't even touch the fur without it falling apart. Oh, no. And yeah, the, the coat had been promised for a loan and we knew we needed to do something as you couldn't mount it on a mannequin without causing more damage to it. And the actual textile by Dufy was in really good condition. I mean, thankfully it's, it's, it's in great shape. It was only the fur that is the problem. And so we decided to do what we consider a last resort, which I had spoken about earlier, which is we documented the fur trim with exhaustive written and visual documentation, and then we removed it so we could preserve it through safe storage. We created patterns of it in order to replace it with a faux fur replica. We used fake fur, so we don't have to contend with CITES issues. Um, If you don't know what CITES is, it's the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species, which limits the import and export of endangered species. And so it has a big impact on what museums can lend and borrow without the appropriate paperwork. So the authentic fur trim is now safe in storage, and we hope it will have a much longer life since we're minimizing handling. And now the code itself can go out and be displayed and we don't have to worry about further damage. And of course, we only did this after seeking the support and approval from our curatorial colleagues. None of our decisions happen um, in a vacuum. We are always discussing things with our stakeholders to make sure that we're all in agreement about what happens. Sarah. Thank you so much for being here today. And we are nearing the end of our time together. But I actually, before you go, I want to come back to the nature of invisibility in your work. It is absolutely integral to your department's success. And yet this has resulted in unintended consequences for your field. You actually refer to the role of conservators and collections managers as quote unquote ghost laborers. You yourself have done an incredible amount of work. I actually would really hope to get some PDFs of your work and share it with our listeners because I think people would love to read it. You've done a lot of work in bringing conservators the recognition they deserve, but what work is there still to be done in museums around the world? How can this culture shift to bring the respect and recognition to the field of dress, fashion, and textile conservation as a whole? 
You know, that's a really good question. I think having scholars like yourself and April being interested in conservation and having me on um, to discuss this profession is an amazing and wonderful first step. And I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity. I, I feel the roles of collections manager, conservator, mannequin dresser, they've rapidly professionalized in the past decades mm-hmm. and have, um, as you mentioned before, become viable and important careers within the museum realm. And, you know, we need more people out there um, really being interested in these areas. I think it is really important for the behind the scenes workers like myself and my colleagues to advocate for our respective professions um, mm-hmm. and to become more open to sharing the work we do with the public, whether it's through writing blog posts, lecturing, talking to donors, especially, or posting on social media. Mm-hmm. I think it's also important for behind the scenes workers to think of themselves as leaders and to engage in leadership training and to really, you know, think of themselves as being integral to the development of, of our field. And lastly, it's critical to mentor the upcoming generations, to open them up to the possibilities of our field, and to encourage them to seek work beyond the traditional curatorial track. I've been really impressed with scholars like you and April and all of my students, my interns, my fellows, everyone who graduated school after me, and and, um, those who have been looking at ways to further open up the field so that it accommodates a variety of perspectives and approaches. Yeah, and I I absolutely think that there's probably some young girls and boys out there who you've now inspired to seek a track and a future in (laughs) fashion conservation. Um, And maybe not so so. young because... I know I changed careers, um, you know, when I was in my 20s, too. It's just it's very cool and it's very inspiring. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so very much. And to all of your listeners, thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Cass, you and I have both been to the lab, but I think maybe our listeners would like to learn a little bit more. What was it like? Yeah, it's so cool. And as expected, as you know, April, it's a state of the art facility very clean and well lit, and it was bustling. There were so many different projects going on at once, and I wanted to learn about all of them, but my time was limited. But our listeners actually do not have to imagine what this lab is like because you can all see it for yourselves. I mentioned the rack.com video, but also thanks to the Google Arts and Culture Initiative uh, called We Wear Culture, you can explore the conservation lab in 360. It's so cool. And not only that, you get to get close up and personal with the conservators featured in this 360 look around and the pieces that they're actually working on, which includes a 1780s French court suit, an 1880s bustle gown, 1890s worth ball gown, and even this really amazing Iris Van Herpen silicon dipped dress called Bird, um, as well as the metal dress that Sarah just mentioned. And I also just want to say that if you do not have the Google Arts and Culture app, get it immediately. Not only does it have fashion collections from around the world that you can explore, like the CI, you can also go behind the scenes at the Kobe Fashion Museum and the Kyoto Costume Institute in Japan, for instance. But April, have you done the art selfie yet? Oh, yes, I sure have. (laughs) There's this amazing feature on it where you take a selfie and it matches you with um, pieces of art from throughout history and around the world. And it's really fun. And I've seen some of my friends, too. Some are better than others. Yeah. (laughs) Some are spot on. Like people have legit doppelgangers from throughout (laughs) history. (laughs) 
Well, that does it for us today, Dress Listeners. Thank you for joining us on this special two-part episode. And until next time, perhaps you yourself will consider the care and conservation of your clothing next time you get dressed. We will post images of Sarah and her team at work on our Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can find us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And again, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, please do so at dressed at houseofworks.com. And don't forget about our merch store, which you can find at tpublic.com forward slash dress. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dress. And check out the new designs we just added because they're really cool and fun. April was just toting her fashion history as the new black tote at the beach. Jealous? Yes, I was. <laughs> and as always, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at How Stuff Works that makes this show possible each week. Catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>